0: Friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to the gospel according to Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. It's a passage, as we are working our way through the gospel of Mark, we're seeing Jesus encounter people. It's a passage in which tonight he engages in calling Levi and yet conflict with the local religious leaders. It's a passage in which Jesus shows himself uh, to be one who cares for the worst and the least in society, even while uh, people who think they're the best despise him for it. Hear now God's word from Mark chapter two, beginning at verse 13. He, Jesus, ...went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts tonight. Let's look to him in prayer. Oh, speak to us, we pray. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Jesus encounters uh, the worst in society. People... Uh, who everybody considers to be at the bottom rung, and yet also people in their day who hung the moon, uh, the religious leaders. And he cares for them both, and so he eats with sinners. And it's a demonstration of his grace. And I want you to think tonight about his grace, because Jesus is, as he says, a physician ministering medicine, to those who are sick. The medicine of his grace. What do we mean by grace? Grace is the blessing and the favor of God to the undeserved in the face of all their demerits. It's people who, who aren't neutral before God but who deserve nothing because they forfeited any hope of anything good. And God favors them and blesses them. And I want you to see three things tonight from the passage. I want you to see that Jesus is aggressive in his grace, that Jesus is despised for his grace. And then I want to make some applications tonight. In the first place, in verses 13 through 15, as Jesus goes out and he calls Levi, I want you to see that he is aggressive in his grace. Here, Jesus is walking along the sea and a crowd comes out to see him and he walks up to Levi and says follow me he invites him to be his disciple and that's unusual as we've said before rabbis would ordinarily uh, not pick their disciples but would wait to be approached by interested disciples who would say i'd i'd like to follow you i would like to learn from you but but here jesus says i want you To follow me. And so he's very aggressive with Levi. And the truth is, Jesus has to come to all of us like he comes to Levi, or we'll never follow him. Who is he called so far in the Gospel of Mark? He's called uneducated commercial fishermen in chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. It's not that they're unintelligent, but they're blue collar, hardworking, but relatively uneducated people. Then after that he goes into the the, the synagogue and in verse 20 he calls to himself a man with an uncontrollable and unclean spirit. And then he meets a leper in 40 to 45, this man who is socially outcast. He's socially isolated. He's probably physically repugnant to look at. Everybody believes he's humanly incurable and God cursed. And Jesus calls him. And then Jesus, after that, calls a family-burdening, helplessly paralyzed man in 2, 1 to 12. These are the people. Who are they, we might ask? Well, not exactly, we might be tempted to say, not exactly the cream of the crop, but rather people who have nothing to offer him. People who have no particular strength or wisdom or skill or influence. And why does he do so? For the same reason he calls us into his kingdom. Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. He says, for consider your calling. You who've been called, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And so because of him, because of Jesus, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, Paul says, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts, boast in the Lord. This is all we have to boast about that Jesus came looking for us and Jesus found us and he called us into his kingdom like Levi. People everybody would otherwise overlook. Now listen if you hear all that and the Bible says it's true you might ask yourself the question well then what do I do? Do I just sit back and wait for God to zap me? Is that what I do? Is that what I tell people to do? Or rather should we run to Jesus to be saved? And the Bible says run, but just understand, as Jesus says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And in John 6, verse 37, Jesus says, all that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Oh, friends, come to Jesus. Do you know that you need a Savior? Do you want to be forgiven for your sins? Come to Jesus and he will receive you and not reject you is what Jesus says. Run to him, but understand this, that it is the Father who gives you legs to run. Why? So that no one can boast. I, I told you about my friend Bryce, an 09 JVU grad. In the summer of 07, he was with us in Florida at a national RUF summer conference and he was deeply troubled in his heart about this question of assurance of salvation. How can I be certain that God forgives me and pardons me and welcomes me and we talked and we read scripture and I prayed for him but I felt helpless to change his heart or to do anything really for him internally. And he told me this fall, four years later as we met together, he said, you know, after we talked and prayed, I went back to my dorm and I took a shower and I felt free to pray, to pour out my heart. And I prayed, he says, and I prayed like this. I said, Lord, I'm too weak to believe in you. You you hear the irony of that. I'm believing in you, praying to you. As I say, I'm too weak even to do it. But I'm too weak to believe in you, he said, I prayed. But I know that I need you. And he says it was like for him, water pouring on his body in the shower was like how God in his grace poured on His soul, the the cleansing work of Jesus, the forgiving work of Jesus. He knew, he says, that I was forgiven, that I was clean before God. And, And then he says, I woke up the next morning and I realized I love Jesus. I love his church. I love his word. Now, friends, not all of us will have a dramatic experience like that. Not all of us will look back on a specific moment in time. When we know without a shadow of doubt that that was the day we first tasted mercy. But all of us simply need to look to Jesus now, right where we are. And he welcomes us. But some of you are saying, you don't know me. I have done so many rotten things. And Some of you are saying, "I've I've left undone so many good things I ought to have done. There's no way. God would have me. Then I invite you to consider Levi. Look what Jesus did with Levi. Look at who he is. We know that that Levi here is also called Matthew. He's actually the one who gives us the gospel according to Matthew. That's his name. And he's a Jew raised in the faith. And what's he doing for a living when Jesus finds him? He's at a toll booth. Collecting taxes. He's in Galilee on a highway that was between Palestine, uh, uh, between Europe and and Africa. Palestine is a land bridge between those continents. He's probably collecting import export taxes. We're not 100% sure about that. But you understand um, that he's making a killing at this job. And he's doing it against his own people this is a guy who's raising taxes, not for the Jews, though he's a Jew, but he's raising taxes for the Romans, the occupying force. And so he's absolutely despised by people who know him and know what he'd be like any of us. Should the United States of America ever be overrun by the Chinese? We trust that this will not be the case. But should we go to war and fifty billion single men from or fifty million single men from China working in their military overrun America, occupy our cities, and at the the point of a gun and a sword say, You obey us. And then they say, We need some of you to collect taxes, because we've got to fund this thing. And you raise your hand and say, I'm in. I'll raise taxes against my people. For you. Now, look, in the Bible, it is not wrong to pay taxes. It's good. Government needs them. It is therefore not wrong to collect taxes. It's wrong to waste them, but that's a whole different story. (laughs) But you understand how we all kind of feel about the guy who raises and gathers our taxes. We tend to feel like he went to work for the man to beat us down. Like my university students who who go to work for the parking department and they write (laughs) tickets against fellow students. It's not wrong. Somebody has to do it. We don't want to see you do it. And here's this guy working for the man, considered by many to be a traitor and a thief. The tax collectors were notorious liars and cheats, extortioners and coveters. Why? Tax collecting was the fastest way to get rich. You bid your contract to the government for how much you were going to collect in taxes. You paid the government up front at the beginning of the year and you went out all year long raising taxes against it. And so you just made up your money, and any extra you got was was gravy. And so it was ripe for coercion, ripe for arm twisting, manipulating, telling people you owe just a little bit more than you think you do. The tax collectors in their day weren't allowed to testify in court because nobody trusted them. They weren't allowed to worship in the temple. And so here's this guy. A reputation as a thief and as a traitor. And there's a crowd coming out to meet Jesus, following him down the sand along the seashore. And it's this guy Jesus walks up to, looks in the face and says, I want you in my kingdom. I want you. Jesus Jesus is aggressive in his grace. He's looking for an opportunity to be gracious. You know the story of Jean Valjean in in Les Mis. He's out of prison, marked as a convict, homeless. And a local priest welcomes him into his home, gives him shelter, food, and a bed. And in the middle of the night, he steals the, the silver candlesticks and other valuables and he flees. But he gets caught and the police recognize the stuff he's carrying. They take him back to the home of the priest to... Return the things and they put it all out there on the table and the priest shoves it right back at Jean Valjean and says, you forgot these other things too. He, he, he forgives Jean Valjean and he gives to Jean Valjean and in that story, that grace melts the heart of Jean Valjean. He can't understand how could someone be so kind to me? And it changes it. Well, that that priest is a demonstration for you of what Jesus is like looking to be forgiving and giving to people who deserve to be prosecuted. That's the kind of Jesus He is. And so I would say to you on the front listen, nobody is too bad for Jesus to call to himself. No sins are too many to be forgiven. By Jesus. And everyone that Jesus calls to himself can sing, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let your grace now like a better bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Why can you pray that? Why can you sing that? Because Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. This is why, and so Jesus is aggressive with his grace, but Jesus is despised for his grace. We may sing that tune, but the Pharisees are singing a different song altogether. Look at that with me, beginning at verse 15 and following, and you'll see it in the contrast between Levi and the religious leaders. In verse 14, Levi follows Jesus. And in verse 15, there's a party in a home. It's actually Luke who tells you that this is Levi's house. Levi throws the party. Why? To celebrate. With who? His friends. And who are they? Other tax collectors and other sinners is how the Bible puts it. Notoriously sinful people. This is the way the Bible talks about prostitutes and others. And Jesus shows up to that party. Jesus does not condone the sin, but he does not condemn these sinners. He loves them. And he's not embarrassed to be associated with them. And he's not afraid of being misunderstood by religious people for it. Because he loves them. And I want to say to you, if we have tasted grace in our hearts like this, we want others to taste it too. And you may not be good at explaining the gospel. You can get better. You may not be called to be a a minister of the gospel. You may struggle with the courage to speak the gospel. But there is at the very least in your heart a want. For others to attend a party with Jesus, to know this kind of sweet mercy. And by contrast, look at the Pharisees here. They're watching. They've begun to show up places where Jesus is going to be, not because they like Jesus, but to get the goods on Jesus so they can destroy him with it. And here, they're all tied up in knots, stunned that Jesus would eat with the scum of society, and they begin to whisper to the disciples. They won't say it to Jesus' face yet. But in verse 16, they begin to whisper to the disciples. And it basically amounts to this. Doesn't Jesus know who these people are? Doesn't he care that they offend God with their very existence? Does Jesus not know that woman over there spreads her legs for cash? And that man over there got rich, stealing from the poor. Doesn't Jesus care that these people are in this home? This is their problem. This is their question. How dare he eat with them? And why is he not eating with us? Doesn't he know who we are? Doesn't he know that we know the Bible? That we care about religious things? This is their argument. Doesn't Jesus know they're saying in their hearts, God's on my side because I'm good. And God hates them because they're bad. And so they despise Jesus for his grace because he loves these people. And so Jesus is here, as another put it, Jesus is giving sinners... The loving attention they don't deserve. And giving the self-righteous the just rejection they do deserve. They don't want unmerited favor. They want what they think they've earned. And so they despise him for his grace. Those are the two things I want you to see. And I want to make four or five points of application. In the first place, friends, you see here the different kinds of people who encountered Jesus. And I want you to understand people and understand yourself. There are not just two kinds of people in the world, Christian and non-Christian, religious and non-religious, though there are Christian and non-Christian. I mean, you're one or the other. But the Bible's more subtle than that. There's really three kinds of people in the world at least prodigals, Pharisees, and the physician's patients. You see them all here. You've got the the prodigals, the Levites. You've got the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and you've got the disciples of Jesus who have come under the care of the great physician. And so I want you to think about it this way. I want you to think about yourself this way. You remember the story of the the prodigal son, the, the younger son and the older son, who are in home with their dad, and the younger son tells to his dad, Give me my inheritance. I'm leaving. In other words, I wish you were dead so I could have your stuff. You're not dead, but give me your stuff. I'm going. This is the younger son. And the father gives him his stuff. And then the older brother in that story, he stays home, he's dutiful. He goes to work in the family business. He does what's expected of him. Those are the two kinds of people. The Pharisee and the prodigal. Some of us are prodigals, like the tax collector, like the prostitute, like the younger brother. Society says we're morally bad people, and we agree with society. We know that. People look down at us because we've squandered the good things we've had. We've destroyed relationships. We've buried the talents God gave us. This is what we've done. We basically have said to God, I want your stuff. I want my inheritance. I want it now, but I do not want you. I want to live like I please. We don't want God. And and we've been running from God ever since. This is who we are. And so, therefore, we figure in our hearts, God doesn't want me. God's against me. God hates me. I mean, of course, we say to ourselves, and we would be wrong. But there are others of us who are like the Pharisee, the older brother, the religious leader. We... We stayed home. We're morally good. Everybody commends us. They think we're good people. We think we're good people. We stayed at home. We helped our dad. We've been good stewards of the things God has given to us. We've cherished our relationships and tried not to destroy them. We've been good stewards with the talents that we have. We tried to cultivate them and improve ourselves. This is who we are. And we've said to God, I do what you want, I attend church, I read the Bible, I pray, I don't screw up too much, not like my peers do. Pay me what you owe me, is what we say to God. I've done what you've asked me to do and I want my reward now. I earned my keep, like the older brother. But like the prodigal, we don't want God, we want what God can give us what we figure in our hearts God owes us. And the story here reminds us that it is far more dangerous to be a Pharisee. It is far more dangerous to be around religion than to be far off. It's dangerous to be a scribe. It's better to be Levi in your self-understanding. Why? Coming to your senses. You know that you have messed up. You know that you've got nothing to offer God. You squandered it all. You know you're broken and you can't heal yourself. You know you need a great physician and you're looking for medicine. That's good. Jesus loves you and he overwhelmingly wants you to know he will welcome you home to himself and he'll heal you. But if you're a Pharisee, it's hard to come to your senses because you're comparing yourself to the prodigal and you're thinking, I'm okay, he's messed up. I'm not broken, he's broken. I'm not what's wrong with this world. That person is what's wrong with this world. And that's dangerous, friends, because Jesus says in verse 17, it is not the healthy Who need a physician. And he doesn't mean there's anybody who's healthy. But there are a lot of people who think they are. It is not the healthy. He says. But the sick. Who need him. And so that's why prostitutes are closer to the kingdom. Than the religious in the Bible. They know they've got nothing. But mercy. If they're going to have anything good from God. They don't want justice. They want mercy. And so you see. These two different kinds of people. Pharisees and prodigals, and there's a third kind. They are the disciples. They are who? Recovering prodigals and recovering Pharisees. Both. But they have come under the physician's care and he is healing them of their heart's disease. And a church is going to be filled with all kinds. And so I want to say a few things to you about this stop expecting the really good people you know to be interested in Jesus and the really bad people you know to be not interested in Jesus. Neither are really interested in Jesus. Both are running from God in different ways, but Jesus can call them home. We've got to not look down our nose at them if we know this is what we are and Jesus came came to find us. But we should also, let me say this, we should expect the church of Jesus to be messy. And I want to say that to you early in our days together. Where do you find a physician at a hospital with sick people? And it's messy around doctors. And so it's going to be messy around Jesus because we're broken, because we're falling apart. And the church is a hospital. This is so helpful to think of it this way. I think in a hospital, what do you find? You find an emergency room. People in an emergency room are bleeding all over the place spiritually and nobody's really sure can this person be saved. They need crisis intervention. You'll find those people here. You'll find in a hospital, an intensive care unit where people are near death on life support and need 24-hour nursing care if they're going to make it. You'll find those people here. The ch- the, a, a church, a hospital has an operating room. People have to have cancer taken out. People need broken bones to be set. There's going to be a mental ward in a hospital because some people, their thinking is just off. It's not working right in the brain. They're just a little crazy. You'll find those people here. In the hospital, people smell bad and people look bad and people feel bad and they get an MRI because they don't know what's wrong with them. Something's just not right. And in a hospital, some people use crutches. Some people use wheelchairs. And in a hospital, you'll find a recovery room where people are beginning to sit up and feed themselves. And in a hospital, you'll find a therapy room where people are learning to walk and talk properly. That is the church. It's a mess. It's a hospital where the physician is helping people to get well. But it is not instantaneous. And it is not completed in this life. You get instantaneous pardon for the offense of it all. And God welcomes you immediately, but he is at work making you be more like what you were meant to be, like Jesus himself. And that is a long process. Nobody gets well, so well, they leave the hospital in this life. It's not a hospital you walk away from. You need it until you're buried and your soul goes to be with Jesus and your body awaits the resurrection to bliss everlastingly. So you and I need to expect the church to be messy. Why would we expect the church of Jesus to be neat and clean? We should, in fact, expect the church to be more messy than what we see in the world. Listen, the world has enormous pressure. People have enormous pressure to conform. If you screw up in the world, it hurts you. If you screw up, it qualifies you for the church. Listen, in the world, if you screw up, you won't do well in business. If you post risque pictures of yourself on Facebook, you won't get hired to be a teacher. If you're terrible at relationships because you stumble all over people, You're going to be bad in business. All those things qualify you to be here before Jesus because he loves people who are sin sick. And the final thing is this. What then is evangelism? We talk as a new church, if we talk about reaching our community with the good news of the gospel, reaching out to others, well, it isn't this. It isn't you playing doctor's assistant you are a sick person telling other sick people where you found a great physician. You're, you're lying on the hospital bed. Maybe you're yelling out, I found a great physician. Come here. But you aren't wearing the white lab coat standing next to the doctor clinically looking down on everybody else and just diagnosing what's really wrong with them because you've got it together. That is not evangelism what the church needs is not people who consider themselves to be doers of morality but people who know that they are needers of mercy and who just want to go tell people where they found grace let's pray Jesus be aggressive in your grace to us we don't deserve any of it have mercy on us, awaken us to our true condition, and heal us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let me invite you-